Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. All right. <laughs> I've got good news and bad news today. All right. Good news. This is the second to last sermon in the Revelation series. Bad news, it's on hell, judgment, and the lake of fire. (laughs) So trigger warning uh, for those of you. (laughs) Um, Let's just get right into it, ladies and gentlemen. Revelation has introduced us to a whole array of new vocabulary words. All right, so I want to review, do some vocab. It's probably since sixth grade since we've done some vocab together, but let's do this. Go ahead and fire up some vocab if you would. Apocalypse. Now, apocalypse, it doesn't mean end of the world. It means unveiling or uncovering. And this is the first, sen- this is the first word of the first sentence of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So it's the revelation of Jesus, not of the end times, not of the Antichrist, not of how the calendar is going to work. It's the revelation of Jesus. It also is a form of literature, and we looked at this weeks ago, I'm just reminding you, that was very common in Jesus' day. And that form of literature doesn't work like any form of literature that we have, because this dealt with imminent judgment from a persecuted people's perspective over their persecutors. It was highly symbolic. It, did not, it was not meant to be read literally. It was meant to be read literarily. And in the case of Revelation, there are two streams of thought that Revelation is in dialogue with. First, the Old Testament like crazy and Roman propaganda of the day. Next, Revelation is also a prophecy. And the point of Old Testament prophecy, if you go back and read it, wasn't to predict the future, but it was to call the current generation to faithfulness to Jesus. Thirdly, the book of Revelation tells us it's an epistle. And that means, and this is so important, my friends, that the the book would have been understood by its original audience. You did not have to wait 2,000 years And have CNN to define, you know, the Iraq war or Apache helicopters before you would have understood the book, all right? Seven times in the book, John says, blessed is the one who reads this and understands. So it was assumed in the early church. So it was written, it's written for us, but it wasn't written to us. That's a big difference a lot of Americans, including myself, you know, have, have to understand You don't open the book of Revelation and go, okay, so what does this mean to my life? The first question you ask is, what would this have meant to the first people that heard it? Because it was written to them. All right, next word. We just got a couple of these. Lampstand. What's a lampstand in Revelation? A church. Check. Next. The lamb. Who's the lamb? Always the right answer. Yes? But this lamb appears always as having been being slain or having been slain or however I'm supposed to say that. The lamb always appears with sacrificial wounds. And that is the central image of the revelation of Jesus in the book of Revelation, the lamb who was slain. Next. The beast, what's a beast? 
a kingdom. This is from Daniel, right? So much of Revelation is recapitulating the book of Daniel. So a beast is a kingdom, all right? And a horn is a king or a ruler. Next. Babylon. Who's Babylon? Oh, so good. You're all right. Because Babylon was an actual city, then it became an empire, then it became an archetype for any community that organizes itself in rebellion against God. So Egypt was a kind of Babylon. Israel, shockingly, became a kind of Babylon. And the current iteration of Babylon, when this was written, was who? Rome. Next, the dragon, not smog, but who else? Lord of the Rings joke there for you under 25. Who's the dragon? Yeah, the ancient serpent, the devil. Next. And what is the day of the Lord? You remember this one? Huh? Day of judgment, but it's a complex judgment because... The day of the Lord refers to the day in the future when God will judge all of evil and corruption and injustice, but it also refers to instances within history where God judges empires that oppress. So the day of the Lord was brought against Egypt, and the day of the Lord was brought against Israel, and Revelation tells us the day of the Lord will be brought against Rome. Now, if all of this is new, I'm sorry, there's no way to catch up. So hard. Now, the, here's the section we're going to read. Guys, this is 30 minutes of pain, five minutes of glory, and then some questions. All right? This is what we're about to read. <laughs> I know, but I asked Randy to put it in one slide. We're going to read two battle scenes. Each is followed by a judgment scene. And the big question that everyone has is how do these scenes and judgments relate to each other? Is this a linear order? Is this saying the same thing twice or what? All right, so we're gonna read the four scenes, right? The first scene is in 19 and we've already read it, but it's where the beasts are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Then there's a judgment scene where the dragon is thrown to the abyss for a thousand years. Then there's the final battle part two where the devil, dragon, Satan are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And then there's a judgment scene part two. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone not found in the Lamb's book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, let me ask you, upon hearing just that summary, are these pretty dense images rife with misunderstanding? Oh yes, we have built entire systems of the afterlife built on some of this. And what I'm gonna suggest is that is the, this is not a theology of afterlife. This is symbolic for the destruction and absolute confinement of evil so that evil will never affect God's creation again. This describes the what, not the how. That's what I'm gonna to argue towards the end, all right? So let's get going. Revelation 19, battle scene number one. I'm gonna zip through this because we read it several weeks ago. <laughs> In it, I, I saw heaven standing open where there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and what? 
Now, interesting that you wage war with justice. Not revenge, not punishment, but justice he wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. This comes from Daniel. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. You remember what that means? Who is this? Jesus, always the right answer. But whose blood is that? What? It's God's blood? Yes, it's Jesus' own blood. We have been trained to see the lamb always with blood on the lamb. So this is, this is pre-battle blood, which is really interesting because I always thought, well, Jesus comes and just kicks everybody's butt. But in actuality, what Jesus is doing is he's coming as the slain lamb and he's just speaking justice. And that's how the battle's fought. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword. This is an image from Isaiah with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a quote from Psalm 2. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thighs written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, their riders, the flesh of people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast, right, a nation, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, but the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. Remember, there are two beasts, one military, one religious. The false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf, with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the what? So, the two beasts into the lake of fire, or burning sulfur, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. Now, is this a literal image? No, Jesus' words, his declaration that he is king of king and lords of, uh, lord of lords, is not literally slaughtering people. This is an Old Testament image where birds gather to feast on corpses. This is an Old Testament image for destruction. That's battle scene number one. If you have questions, just wait. It's gonna get worse. Yeah, you text them, thank you, Kevin. And Kevin's doing his uh, shebang after this service in the lounge, convos with Kevin. <laughs> then we get a judgment scene. Now, I know this is really painful, but just wait. It gets worse. Judgment scene after that battle. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding his hand on a great chain. The abyss we met earlier in Revelation, it's the place where evil dwells. He sees the dragon, he seized, excuse me, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan. There are four different identifiers. And bound him for a thousand years. Now a thousand is a super interesting number because a thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. And to the Hebrew mind, 10 represented completeness or fullness. So the Torah was 10 commands. And so 10 times 10 times 10 is a Hebrew way of saying, this is a long time until God finishes his purpose. 
Okay, again, we're not, we don't read these numbers literally, and I know that sounds like, oh, Journey Church hates the Bible. No, we love the Bible so much, we allow it to tell, we allow it to tell us how to read it. And in this kind of literature, the numbers are not literal, they're symbolic. So we've met 12s and 7s and three and a halfs. All of those are kinds of time, not lengths of time. All right, so we meet a 10 times 10 times 10 saying, this is a long period of time that will not end until God's purposes for it are completed. So we threw... The angel threw the devil into the abyss, locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. All right, here comes the judgment. I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. We've met these people throughout the whole book of Revelation. Who are they? The martyrs that have been and are being and will be killed by Rome. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now that little line turns out to be kind of an important clue about what the thousand years represents. We'll get to that later. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but there will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So number one battle scene, the beasts gather the kings of the earth. Jesus comes with a sword in his mouth. He speaks justice and the kings of the earth are, and empire are destroyed. And empire, the beasts are now thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Then those that were martyred by the empire now sit in judgment over everything. So one scholar says this, the point of this blissful interlude is to reassure the church that this is written to that the martyrs will be victorious and they will reinforce the church's faithful witness. Next. In effect, this scene recognizes a special class of faithful witness who have suffered the ultimate fate and therefore deserve and will receive special recognition by God as co-regents with Christ even before New Jerusalem. Those judged and oppressed by Babylon will now sit as rulers and judges. All right, now, I know we're swimming in all the details. I totally got it. But we're painting, what the Bible's doing here is painting pretty epic pictures of something that we're gonna explore in more detail. Battle scene number one, Jesus on a horse, his own blood, speaking truth and justice. Judgment scene number one, the martyrs now sit in judgment of the empire. In a twist. Judgment scene, uh, judgment, um, nope. Battle number two, here we go. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are from Ezekiel. And to gather them for battle, in number they are like the sand on the seashore. 
They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, the dragon, was thrown where? Right. Now what does it mean if beasts are nations for a nation to be tormented day and night forever and ever? Notice, the devil... The beast and the false prophet had been thrown to the lake of fire and they will be what? Tormented day and night forever and ever. Yeah, what does that mean? That a beast, a false prophet, and the devil will be tormented, right? The, the, like the image is like, how do you torment empire? I'm not sure. Is that the people of empire? Chaos? Chaos? Oh, we'll see. I'm not quoting you on that one, but I, I get the reference. So that's battle scene number two. <laughs> Are you guys okay? I mean, you just came in for a little joy to the world, and we're sitting, I mean, you guys over here. I'm so sorry. Oh, all right. First battle scene, he's on a horse, and the beasts are thrown into the fire. Then there's a judgment scene where the, this serpent is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years and then released. And then there's a second battle scene where the beast gathers the nations again and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And then uh, now there's a second judgment scene. And this is the one that I think a lot of us are very familiar with. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's a Jewish way of saying God. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Ooh, that's interesting. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. We've met this book throughout Revelation. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What does it mean for death to be thrown in the lake of fire? Or Hades, the realm of the dead. What does that mean? See, we're gonna argue that it means that those entities are destroyed, never to plague humanity again. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, does it say anything about them being tormented day and night? Not a word. So we make special <laughs> mention of the torment of the beasts and the dragon, but no mention of torment for the people. Just interesting. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the question is how does all of this relate to each other? I was raised in a system that said this is all in the future and it's gonna happen chronologically. This is very, very literal. Jesus returns, zaps the nations, then he um, locks up Satan for a thousand years, then Satan is gone and literally raises another army and bam, we deal with that army and then there's a throne judgment that looks exactly like this. And it, so it's a very, very 
a, a chronological list of what's about to happen. Other people, shockingly myself included in this list, uh, see it telling a very different story. What I think the revelator is saying, and this is consistent with the other battle scene involving Satan in Revelation 12, is that we're talking about the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That Jesus dismantled the spiritual powers and vindicated the martyrs in his death and resurrection. And that this age is the thousand year age under which the saints reign in heaven. We, the church, attest to their reign and then there is a final coming that, that happens and a final judgment that accompanies that. Now, we can get into all of this, but how many verses mention the thousand years? How many verses? Yeah, three? An entire theological systems are built on the thousand verses. The three verses about a thousand years, sorry. So let me ask you a question. If you were one of the original readers of Revelation, how much of an emphasis is the thousand years in the whole story of the book of Revelation? Nothing. And yet, as we are apt, we take a detail that we think we can map and blow it into an entire system of forecasting. So I think what's being shown here is this whole image is a replay of Daniel chapter seven, now applied to Jesus. So let's go to Daniel seven. Are you guys okay? I'm bored. I'm confused. You're not confused? Dude, you are my man. You are my man. Now, was it, did I have a quote there? Okay. So in Revelation, there are two images of judgment. First image we've met already, the lake of fire. Second image we're gonna meet in Revelation 21 and 22 about the wicked being outside the city. Let's talk about lake of fire because that's the one we just met. Daniel, now guys, pay close attention to the imagery in Daniel. As I looked, thrones were set in place. All right, instantly, when you read that in Revelation, you're like, oh yeah, this is Daniel. And the Ancient of Days, remember that's a Jewish way of talking about God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was what? With fire. And its wheels were on fire too. That's a weird image. And a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court of judgment was seated, and what were opened? Hmm. That seems familiar. Next. Then I continue to watch of the boastful words of the horn. What's a horn? A king. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into what? Hmm. So is Revelation writing new stuff? Nope. This is the day of the Lord filtered through the sacrificed lamb coming to its final conclusion. 
So if you were reading Revelation 19 and 20, you'd instantly be going, this is Daniel. This is Daniel. It's happening. Now, let's talk a little bit about torment, all right? And sulfur. Now stick with me. So we have two battle scenes, two judgment scenes. Great, but those raise lots of questions. One of the questions is what the heck is the lake of fire and what happens in it? So on the one hand, we're told that the beasts and the, the, uh, the dragon are tormented day and night. And the other hand, we're told that there are people that go there too. So what does that mean? And from this theology, we've developed the theology of eternal conscious torment, that God torments people in hell forever. And that's what they deserve. So let's look a little bit about torment and sulfur, shall we? <sighs> All right. Yep. We didn't do this on joy week. We did this on peace. Just be glad for that. No. And I make all these jokes just knowing this is so, this is so thick and so unlike most religious services you attend. But doggone it. I mean, this is what it means to take the Bible seriously is you have to sit in all of it and not just the parts that are really pretty. So we have to wrestle with this because Jesus uses this, this language too. So with integrity, we say, okay, what is, what is being put on display here? And as it turns out, not shockingly, this is channeling Old Testament imagery from Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's read the end of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord rained down what? Burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. So whenever you hear burning sulfur, and you'll see it later, this is always a callback to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord, uh, excuse me, the rain down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Next. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain. And then what's the next word? So the burning sulfur destroyed something, correct? Okay. Next slide. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. He looked down at Sodom and Gomorrah towards all the land of the plain. He saw dense what? Smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So the city had been destroyed and there is smoke rising as an indication of its destruction. Just keep that image in your mind. Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Babylon, becomes a stock image of God's judgment in the Old Testament. So later on in Deuteronomy we read, God is warning the Israelites, your children will follow you in later generations and foreigners who will come from distant lands and see the calamities that have fallen upon the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. What's that a reference to? Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing in it. All right, you with me so far? Let's look at some other pictures. This picture is a picture of the destruction of Edom, another nation. And the images that are used to talk about the destruction of Edom come from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Eden's streams will be turned into pitch. Her dust will be what? Burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise forever. Now, the city is destroyed, 
but the smoke of its destruction rises forever. Okay, do you see what he's saying? That image is gonna come back in just a second. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. Okay, sweet. New Testament uses Sodom and Gomorrah imagery as well. Here's Jesus talking about, um, I think his return. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and what them all? Destroyed, okay, next. This is Peter. If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Okay, so destruction, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to the fate of the ungodly. Are you with me so far? Let's make it worse one more time. Jude, hey, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual morality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of what? Oh, now notice, eternal fire and destruction are linked together here. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was destroyed and the smoke rose forever and ever. But he calls this eternal fire. Now, guys, just come on, 10 more minutes. You've got this. We need to talk about the word eternal because in Greek, it's more nuanced than it is in English. Fire up the Greek. All right? Aeonios. Eternal can mean never ending, like the never ending story or the never ending song that never ends. But here's where it gets really nuanced. It can also mean just a period of time. Eternal kind of time. And it can also, the way Jude's using it here, mean a quality of something. So when Jude uses the word eternal, what's it modifying? It's modifying fire. So it's an eternal kind of fire. Ooh, now this leads us to really the, the verse that is most used to defend the idea that we are consciously tormented in hell forever, Revelation 14. Whew, a third angel. This is earlier in the story. Third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. This is exactly fulfilled in 19 and 20, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with what? In the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their what? Will rise what? There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. Now we read this in English and go, well, there it is. He torments them forever and ever. But the image comes from a city that has been destroyed and the smoke rises forever and ever. So you have the combination of sulfur, smoke rising forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. That's from Eden, the destruction of Edom and Isaiah. So rather than a picture of God tormenting people forever, 
The lake of fire is a, is a picture of everything that doesn't fit into new creation being destroyed. That's it. Are you with me? I'm not making this up. I mean, you read that, and that is stock imagery from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was destroyed. It wasn't tortured forever. So the smoke rising sounds like a great song name. <laughs> I don't know. The smoke rising isn't an image of the torture of people. It's the image of their destruction. They are like, oh, that's great news, Mike. So God doesn't torture people. He just destroys them. Yeah. But, well, hold on a second before we go there. Oh, I have a whole nother section about people being outside the city that we just don't have time to get into. But it's glorious. All right, so let me make a couple of points and then we'll do some Q's and some A's. Big point number one, you don't have to buy this at all. But I do find it interesting that one particular view of hell has become a test for orthodoxy. When the Bible is far more ambiguous about the pictures in Revelation than we would care to first admit. Again, it's another instance of taking something that isn't super clear and making it abundantly clear and then using it to fear monger people in to following Jesus. And I think that is an instance of the Christian church becoming Babylon. Because instead of liberating people, we're controlling them, we're threatening them, we're staying in power as the only arbiters of salvation. That's dangerous stuff. And I know saying this isn't super popular. I've been uninvited from all sorts of speaking engagements when I started to suggest like, yeah, I don't think it's eternally conscious like torment. I think, that, I think it's an image of something else. Man, I don't know why people hold on to this view. People have asked me, well, if you take hell away, then why would I follow Jesus? And here's the answer. If you're asking that question, you've missed who Jesus is altogether. Right? The reason we follow Jesus is because Jesus is compelling and he shows us what it is to be fully human. That's what it is to be saved, to restored into the image of God and brought into peace with one another. That's what's compelling. It's not something you do so you're afraid of not. And when you frame discipleship as the joyful learning, relearning of what it is to be human, then it covers all of life and it is nothing about being religious. It is all about learning to bear image to God in all aspects of human life and to be an ambassador of shalom. Whew. So when we get to the judgment battle passages in Revelation, and you start reading about Lake of Fire. Now, if you guys want, and I mean this, we can do a one-off, not a sermon, but we could do like just a beautiful night of hell together. 
in a bar somewhere, I kid you not, and we can go over all the evidence that suggests that the lake of fire is a place where evil is destroyed. And do we have any idea if people after we die get the opportunity to accept Jesus or not? I don't know. We have one instance of Jesus supposedly going to hell and preaching the gospel in between his death and resurrection, which seems to mean, or at least suggest, that it's a little more complex than maybe we'd at first heard. Now, one last point and then questions. What the, the, the revelator is describing, and again, you don't have to buy it, but the revelator is describing what happens, not how it happens. So if, for instance, I said, and I saw, like, if, if I were John and Revelation was being written today, and I said, and I see before me the kings of the earth and the beasts, and there was a great mushroom cloud that arose up in the plain of this desert, and everyone was destroyed. Biblically, would that mean that God's going to use a nuclear bomb? Nope. But the nuclear bomb stands for what? destruction. And that is precisely the hope of revelation, that there will come a moment when evil will be permanently confined, never to pollute God's good world again. And that's why John will say, next week, there will be no more crying or sorrow or pain. Because death and Hades and sin and the beasts, and empire, and oppression, and injustice, and all of those who would willingly partner in that are judged. We hear this as white, most of us, as white, comfortable, middle-class people, we hear this as bad news. If you're a minority, if you're at a house church in China or Iraq, this is great news you will be vindicated and your oppressors will be judged. But because we have a lot invested in the status quo of this world, it seems really disruptive. But for those who do not, this is great news. 10 minutes, questions, and we're gonna end the service. Yes, sir. Hold on, wait. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you. My name's Mike. First of all, I buy 100% into what you're saying about destruction. The Bible, I think it's like 95% of the time when it talks about hell, it calls it destruction. Yeah. I want to uh, add a nuance and get your thoughts on it. Uh, when Jesus talks about how some will be yeah. beaten with many stripes and some will be beaten with few stripes, does that suggest that maybe there is some suffering going on prior to this destruction or does that mean something else? I don't, I don't know the stripes. Is there another way to say that? I don't know. Beat with whips. In other words, Jesus was talking about there was a time where people will, I think it's talking about the afterlife, where some, presumably the really bad people, will get a lot of whipping, huh. and maybe the not so bad people will get a few. Anyways, maybe if you're not familiar with that, that's fine. But for me, that was always a nuance that maybe there was some suffering, but in the end... Like you said, the idea of eternal suffering maybe isn't, we have to rethink that. So thank you. No, Mike, you're welcome. I'm sorry I don't know that text, so I would be hesitant to speak on it, but I'll, I will anyway. Um, 
No. Do you know it? No. Well, then I'm, I feel better about not knowing it well, if you don't good. know it either. Uh, there, there does seem to be... Does it, does it have Catholic origins at all? It's in the Bible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Text it to us. I'd love to read it and, and kind of get at it. Uh, any, anything else? Hopefully, nope. Oh, yes. Oh, you're my favorite. You're my favorite. Where? Okay. Right here. Red. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I'm trying to put it all together. Um, I know. <laughs> so, like what you've said in past sermons about this, you're saying that this... Um, all of this, the battle, the judgment, the battle, the judgment. Again, it's all just referencing the promise of what's happened in the past. Of, of what's happening now. What's happening and now. what's happening in the future. And it's not, say, yeah, and it's, it's really saying, hey, be patient. You, we're referencing that yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to them and what happened to them. It's not some future prediction. It's like, look at what God has already done and be patient. Right. And that's kind of... The, all what Revelations is saying. If you take away, after all of this verbiage, huh. be faithful and patient, you've hit it. That's the point of the and, book. And look at the look at the look all at three places. Look at the Bible. The Revelation is channeling past, present, and future all at the same time. Okay, the future part is what starts confusing me. Totally, but that's because <laughs> we want to turn it into a calendar. Okay. So All it's just we, like the eternal, like, uh, it's just like faith. Of, say more. That's great. Well, I mean, the future is that we don't know the future. We don't know the plan. We can. Evil will be confined. Right. And followers of Jesus will be liberated. And we don't have to be afraid in the meantime. Yeah, so it's not like a, a threat. It's more, it's a promise of yeah. looking back. Yes. Oh, that's so good. How? How does new creation come? It comes when old creation is judged and refined. That's what we're going to look at next week. This is the only way to get to new creation is through judgment. Because, I mean, think about it. The first murder, God says, I hear Abel's blood crying up from the ground, right? How many billions of murders have there been since? Like, the only way to get to New Jerusalem is by clearing out the rubble of Babylon. So, so for readers, the first readers of the Bible, judgment was great news. That means there will be an accounting. So that's why there are two books. There's the Lamb's Book of Life, and then there's the books according to the things we have done. So that even evil is reckoned with. I don't know how. I don't know how, and that's the point. I want to get us away from building theologies of eternal punishment from symbols that are borrowing from Old Testament images to say, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. I don't know if we die and we open our eyes and we, we're in resurrected bodies immediately. I don't know if we soul sleep for a while. I don't know if we're all wrong and we just wink out of existence and we'll never know we're wrong. You know, I have no clue. Wow, that's a big span of possibility. Possibility. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate that. Let me redirect you to another yes. one more question. Because we're at what time you got? Ten fourteen. Okay. Okay, this may be random. Maybe not. Um, you keep connecting Revelation back to Genesis, right? 
is the revelation connects back to Genesis. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm not making it up. I'm blaming you. Um, Is the book of life somehow symbolically correlated to the tree of life? And the book of judgment and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes. Great question. I don't know the answer. I do know, I know, right? I do know in ancient cities, there would be a book containing the registry of its citizens. And if you were not in that book, you were considered someone outside the city and subject, Kevin was reminding me earlier, subject and vulnerable without the city's protection, without any citizenship rights. And so I think the lamb, if I were, if I were guessing, which is all this is, there seems to be a whole lot. Kevin, I really... I'm, I'm getting answers to uh, the whippings. Oh, we got whipping? Yep. Uh, it, it's a reference from Isaiah 10 and repeated in Luke 12. Oh. So. There you go. Let's see their podcast or write about yeah. it. Yeah. So, Mike, great job. It's in there. <laughs> and We were all suspicious. We're like, ah. According, I don't know. According to my texts. Um, people, you have been vindicated. People want a night in a bar talking about hell, so that's... You want to? You just want a night in a bar with <laughs> all the biblical justification. Hey, we can do that. That would be fun. That would be fun, and we can get more into this. But here's... All right. We put no worship after this, because how do you pull this thing together after this train wreck? That's why we did communion early. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But here's the thing. We have one more week of revelation. God's last and most important act isn't judgment. God's last and more, most important act is new creation. So we're ending, and that's why we're doing baptisms next week, is because new creation is something that happens today. If Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, new creation has come. And so the word is a word of hope. I don't know if people get post-mortem opportunities to accept Jesus when they see that it's real. I want to just move us away from making a picture of a thousand years and a picture of torment and blowing those into theologies that you must believe or you're outside the faith. I just, I could not be more opposed to that. They may be right, but to take really confusing stuff and clarify it to the point where it's only this, I don't know. I think there are are some things in the Bible that are super clear. The identity of Jesus, the reality of sin, all of that, yes. But when we get to Revelation, we have this tendency to build whole systems of thought around details that I just don't think are as clear as we make them out to be. So even if you're not buying the whole thing, great, that's not the point. The point is to lead us into humility and curiosity. And for those of you who've been traumatized by a view of revelation that presents a view of God as an angry tyrant out to get you, we repent of that in Jesus' name. That's not the view of God in Revelation. God is a God of justice. God says enough. God draws limits. Yes. But how and when and who? I think our sister said it well. 
quoting, the, the, quoting John, this calls for patient endurance. So we are to be people liberated into hope. We don't have to be afraid. There's a much bigger story we're a part of. And that death does not have the last word over our lives. If that's the worst thing that happens, it's not the worst thing that happens.